think it's uh, interesting that we discuss first with James some preliminary preliminary concepts. Um, so, James, let's plunge right into the um, discussion. Could you explain a bit the concept of the mind having an identity in the context of this essay? Well, this essay, The Comprachicos, is basically Ayn Rand's extended critique of modern contemporary educational methods, broadly termed, and I mean broadly termed, progressive education. That It was an essay published in 1970, in uh, one of the last essays published in her magazine, The Objectivist, and it was reprinted as the last essay in her uh, collection, The New Left, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. And it is a long and extended essay, and uh, goes into several of the different new uh, educational techniques that were coming in at that time under the broad rubric, bru broad rubric progressive education. Um, now you ask about the identity of consciousness in this. You know, Ayn Rand, in my view, one of the great achievements of hers philosophically, one of the fundamental achievements of hers philosophically, was that she was the first philosopher, specifically the first uh, epistemologist, who recognized the identity of consciousness as not a disqualifying feature of consciousness, but as the means, as the very mechanism of consciousness. In her famous line, uh, uh, refuting Kant in this context in particular, the guy who really did confuse content and uh, uh, method in human consciousness. We're not blind because we have eyes or deaf because we have ears. We can see because we have eyes. We can hear because we have ears. We're not deluded because we have a mind. We can know because we have a mind. And uh, so for her, there is a specific uh, nature to human consciousness. We have the capacity to form percep percepts. We have the capacity to form conceptual knowledge our emotional mechanism beyond the physical pleasure pain mechanism is itself programmed by our evaluations um, and in this context it's particularly she says here in this essay in particular with regard to free will she believes human beings have free will a capacity for choice self-consciousness self-directed consciousness but it is not an infinite capacity nor a magical capacity. At some point, the limits of human consciousness will kick in when a child is uh, mentally abused. We all know in the emotional case of trauma, for example, that can last a lifetime, uh, any trauma, but particularly childhood trauma. But Ayn Rand is saying something even deeper than that. It is our mental methods, whether they, we, whether this, uh, this, uh, these skill set that were, that is innate to us, a skill set that's innate to us is properly developed. She believed uh, that we that the content, the content of our consciousness is empty at birth. The content must be filled by perception and conceptualization. But our method, our emotional palette, the tools we have, those are built into us, and including free will. And those have certain limits. We were talking in one of our recent essays about how at a certain point when a child doesn't learn language, if they don't learn language by a certain age, they're unlikely to ever learn language. So if these cognitive skills aren't developed at the correct time in our development, they may never properly get developed, an idea Ayn Rand returns to again and again in this essay. You talked about method, and that, that's related to another question, preliminary question that I have, and that is, what is psychopistemology? I think we have touched that in previous essays, but for us to have it fresh for the discussion of the essay, what is it? Well, it's a, it, you know, it's a science that Ayn Rand herself discovered and 
<laughs> named <laughs> so that uh, it, what she defines it as is the study of human cognitive processes from the perspective of the interaction between automatized subconscious processes and our conscious processes. So you can look at epistemology as sort of our conscious uh, processes, uh, you know, our conceptualization, our free will, the stuff that we can really think about consciously. But that's not all of epistemology. I mean, consciously, I can give you tips on, you know, uh, uh, the scientific method or how to do logic, logical fallacies. But consciousness is more than that. Learning, according to Ayn Rand, is a process of autom making automatic, automization. You know, everyone knows, you know, uh, whether it's some athletic skill or learning to play the piano, there comes a point where some complex mechanism, just you just give yourself, you know, slow and laborious as you're practicing, but then at some point you just give yourself the boom and it just automatically comes out. Automization, and it doesn't just work with physical skills, it works with our mental skills, it works with our mental operations. So what happens is we habituate certain mental ways of thinking and looking at the world. That's what Ayn Rand means by psychopistemology, uh, the interaction between the automatized subconscious functions and the uh, conscious volitional functions of our consciousness and their interaction. Talking about something also automatizable, or at least something that Rand thought was automatizable, was the relationship between sensations and perceptions. Could you explain a bit more what she thought about this? Well, we, you know, when babies first look out at the world, the evidence that we have is that they are perfectly able to sense all kinds of things, sounds, colors, they start to develop even shapes in their head. But to see it as an object, to recognize this as mother, or to recognize this as the crib or the toy, it, to see them as units that we then, um, again, automatically look to and say, oh yes, teddy bear are there, before we even maybe have teddy bear. There's that object, that soft thing over there. The ability simply to perceive objects is something that's developed in infancy, is developed in infancy. She points out certain experiments that have been done about people who've been blind from birth, for example, who were surgically given the ability to see many years later, they do not instantly or automatically and may never develop the ability to perceive in objects. They'll see colors, they'll see motion, they'll hear sounds, but they won't connect the sound to the object that's making the sound, uh, for example. So that integration of our perceptions into uh, single units that we perceive called entities, for example, is, some, is an acquired skill in our infancy. Thank you. I have two other preliminary questions. Um, I, I think I should explain a bit more about to the audience why I'm having these preliminary questions. And it's because I think if we already have chewed these questions beforehand, we can uh, automatize them uh, further <laughs> when, when we talk about them in when we talk about the questions of the essay. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yes. So what is progressive education? Progressive education refers to uh, a broad pedagogical, that is to say, how you teach, a broad educational movement that began um, the latter part of the 1800s, the 19th century. Um, uh, in Europe, it became known as the New Educational Movement. In the United States, it was mostly known as progressive education. Uh, it began with, uh, with the most 
by far the most important name uh, behind all this is the philosopher and uh, philosopher of education named John Dewey, an American philosopher who had a tremendous influence on the way uh, education was done in North America uh, uh, in the 20th century. Uh, I can testify to that personally, but it began before him. He was under the influence, obviously, of, of, of previous philosophers and educators. Educators, uh, uh, let's see, Pest, uh, uh, Pestalozzi, uh, Froebel, uh, Herbart, European educators uh, of the of the 19th century who were do experimenting with different methods of education. They were themselves inspired. And John Dewey himself was a pragmatist who learned from William James, the philosopher who we knew, and uh, uh, through pragmatism, the philosophy of James and Dewey, of course, the influence of Immanuel Kant and Hegel is very strong and pronounced. Uh, I w have to give honorable mention here to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who uh, his own book, Emile, or On Education, had a profound impact on the theories of these uh, European and American philosophers of education. Um, and so it emphasized, the substance of it is to basically de-emphasize memorization or rote learning and uh, the authority of the teacher in the classroom to allow what they call the spontaneous development of small children and their individuality at a very early age through hands-on learning, through experiential learning, having them play with toys, not in a conceptual way like Maria Montessori would insist, but just go out there and discover yourself before your mind is even formed or you even have as much of a self at all formed, go out and be yourself. Um, so spontaneity, action, interacting, and another big concept that overrides all of this is socialization. Socialization is everything, 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 especially in, in the earlier stages of education. Getting along with the group uh, is what it's all about. And in Dewey's mind, the whole function of education is to socialize the, the child. That's the sole function in his mind, basically, of education. So with these basic principles in mind, progressive education then proceeded to reform uh, how education was done. Um, kindergartens came in, you know, the, the socialization and play of children in preschool and kindergarten and so forth. But certain educational techniques are implied both in elementary school and uh, in uh, high school or gymnasium level, and then as well as the college or university level. Thank you. Sure. Um, so I think we could, well, sorry, I, I had something beforehand. Is it the same as Montessori. I think that's a question that many people have, which maybe aren't aware of maybe something that Rand has said or aren't very aware of uh, school education. Rand was education. a huge fan of Maria Montessori, the Italian educator. She had she went in uh, to urban areas in Italy to educate the poor, and she had dramatic success. And in one, and if you, depending on how you look at progressive education, so vaguely as you know using play, for example, in preschool to develop uh, methodological thinking or the development of the individual. Uh, uh, those ideas, broadly speaking, you, I guess you could include Maria de Montessorian, but hers is an entirely different approach. She's often categorized as a progressive educator and one of the mothers of progressive education, but her approach was a conceptual one, and one that did not de-emphasize content, one that did not de-emphasize the important role of the teacher, for example, one that did not overemphasize socialization. 
both Montessori and Rand did not believe, did not dismiss socialization as an important uh, function in early education. They just didn't place this all important, omnipotent influence of education. That's the main point of education. Uh, so I would definitely ca categorize Maria Montessori uh, differently, even though many people do. And you know, if you go to Mont Montessori schools are very popular as private schools in the United States, and there's a big difference between them. Some of them do adhere more strictly to Maria Montessori's own methods, and more of them, and, but uh, there are others who would incorporate other, more what I would call truly progressive ideas in education. So don't just trust it because it calls itself Montessori. <laughs> So let's dive right into the essay, right? Um, so could you explain what is the main point that Ryan is making in this 40-page-long um, essay? Well, what she's saying is that edu the education of a child is extremely important, and it will help develop habitual methods of thinking or not thinking or how they think that will characterize a lifetime. And the earlier the education, the more it will have a lifelong, potential lifelong impact. She does pause, as I say, about free will. And she asks at each stage, is, could a child overcome what the damage that was done from, say, a progressive preschool or kindergarten? Can a child at the next stage overcome uh, the damage done in progressive education at the primary school level and so forth? At each level, she asks, can this be undone? Because that's the question. That's the theme. Progressive education at every level hobbles the conceptual faculty. It does not develop for all their talk about method, for all their talk about learning how to think over substance. Uh, they actually hobble the conceptual faculty. And more than that, in emphasizing the power of the group, the power of the tribe, uh, they've conditioned a young mind to accept all of the terrible tenets of modern philosophy, of course, which university education will put the capstone on. So what it's doing is it's in effect destroying the mind as far as Ayn Rand is concerned. And that in many, if not most cases, has a lifetime negative impact on children. And she explains the sorts of psychological impacts that uh, progressive education can have. It's a powerful, powerful essay. Uh, uh, going through these various techniques at these different levels and demonstrating the uh, damaging effect on the human mind that might characterize the poor person for the rest of their life. Do you explain a bit more on the Comprachico's metaphor? Where, where, where is she grabbing this word from and what, what does she refer about? Well, you would know Comprachico, literally, literally buyers of children buyers of children, children buyers. And it, it, it's a terrifying passage she begins with from her favorite novelist, Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo is maybe the most famous uh, uh, author on this topic. And he was talking about techniques in the 1600s that were fading out by the 1700s in which children were physically mutilated from early, early infancy. Um, he compares it to the development of bonsai plants in the Far East, you know, just as 
you wire a tree in such a way that you're going to stunt its growth. And so what should be a 20 foot tall tree, you know, <laughs> you know, should actually turns out to be this teeny little diminutive model of itself. Well, the, a similar thing can be done with human beings physically. And so Victor Hugo describes the tor the tortures, the injuries that are done usually under uh, anesthetic, so the poor child doesn't even remember it, or the kind of not just injuries, but the the sort of the twisting, stunting of breaking bones and joints to keep uh, a a person small. It's the creation of dwarfs and freaks for the entertainment of kings and popes. That's literally what it was, and there is evidence that this happened. A lot of it is oral tradition. A lot of it is, you know, some of it is just from oblique written references. But we have evidence that during, uh, you know, before the Enlightenment, uh, kings would have human beings created for their own entertainment and a rather disgusting mutilation. Ayn Rand makes the comparison here to the mind. It's not just the body that can be stunted in the process of its growth, but the mind. And when you do it at an early age, you are in effect having this kind of potentially permanent damage, disfiguring not the face or the body, but disfiguring the mind, the way the child thinks, how they think, their confidence in their own ability to uh, know. Um, and that's what she's using as an analogy here. Our modern education has in effect become the comprachicos, have, modern educators have become the comprachicos of the mind. Just as a nice and a side note, I, I once heard that from the man who laughs, the the main character is what he inspired the figure of uh, the Joker. Right, he has this yeah. this this oh, it's the creepiest thing in the whole world. He has this hideous smile that's been blazed into his face. Yeah, oh, what a powerful novel! I recommend everyone read uh, the man who laughs. Very powerful. So, James, could you outline how this essay is split uh, in terms of psychopistemological development? The conceptual faculty needs training. The conceptual faculty, unlike, uh, say, sense perception. You know, when a child is a baby learning to talk and walk, and even before that, even perceive the world, these things come in a mostly non-volitional way. The child uh, has an automatic positive feedback loop. He wants to crawl and then stand up and then walk. And then the child wants to talk and communicate with mother and the primary caregivers. And so there's a natural capacity, you know, like our ability to, you know, bird's ability to spread its wings that a child is basically doing in its infancy. But beyond that, beyond that level, it must be trained. And if a, a conceptual faculty is not properly trained, if, for example, the child is not told, no, there is a subject matter to learn, and there is a correct way of learning it, and it's, you know, that has to be the primary focus as opposed to socializing the child or letting their instincts give free reign before they even have developed a self. Um, and when that's the approach, what you've done is you've created in the mind, even in an intelligent mind, you've probably created some fallacious syndrome. Ayn Rand, for example, we're discussing an understanding objectivism, uh, the, the psychoepistemological syndromes of rationalism or empiricism. But that's probably the best result if you end up with one of those uh, bad results. It could actually hobble your entire conceptual apparatus as such, making independent thought as an adult difficult or impossible.
So yes, if uh, conceptual faculty has to be trained, it has to be trained in childhood, or you could be hobbling the person's cognitive capacity for life. So let's, I, I don't exactly know the stages of schooling in the US, so I, so, but I think uh, the first step that she calls is nursery, which, which I think it's from zero to um, six years. Well, usually they, they don't put them in as infants. It's about three to five uh, where they'll put them into these progressive nursery schools. And today, because of the uh, so many uh, mothers uh, entering the workforce, uh, it's part of childcare almost. It's almost considered a nursery school and that kind of thing is almost considered a necessary part of childcare these days. But it's really sometimes just giving the mother or the father a chance to uh, go to work and have a job. But of course, uh, at this stage, instead of, for example, contrast it to Maria Montessori, she would have constructive play that would develop the conceptual capacities of the child. For example, things ordered in different sizes, right? And put them in the order of the sizes. You learn size and stuff. Well, instead of directed conceptual education, such as the strict Montessori method would call for, this is basically just letting a kid's instincts run rampant, run wild, and go and socialize with, with other kids, uh, be yourself, and, and that's uh, what you're learning. Now, so I can't imagine a, a starker contrast there. And in the first instance, you're training a conceptual capacity. In the second instance, this conceptual faculty that wants so much to be developed is actually not being stunted. And when one goes to a nursery school, uh, based on progressive education, where does one begin and where does one end, uh, or at least in average, how does do these kids end? Uh, what what is their metaphysical drive or implicit uh, ideas? Well, instead of uh, you know facts or truth or you know anything objective being pointed to, the one thing that they are told because there really isn't much subject matter. It's really a question of play and socialization and getting on with your peers. Um, the, the implicit message that is driven home is that the group is everything. You know, the gang is everything. I've got to fit in. I've got to, or lead this group somehow. I've got to survive. For the better ones who don't want to just go along, I've got to survive and adjust at least to this social environment, which is all important. The group is all. It is epistemologically all. And so of course, this is the setup for what Ayn Rand would call social metaphysics, in which your belief in reality takes a back seat to what other people believe, or what other people believe will actually determine what you believe. You know, the famous scene from The Fountainhead when Peter Keating takes a poll of the guests to see what they all think of Howard Works building, and Dominique asks him what to figure, to know what you think yourself. <laughs> you see Peter Keating, what takes a poll to figure out what he thinks himself. Uh, well, that is the mentality that would result, uh, or at least get a start, get a start. I know this is still early education, but get a start. I, you know, I can compare it to my own preschool experience or high, uh, kindergarten experience. There was no real learning going on at all. You were basically thrust into a group of small, other small children who have not developed a sense of self at all, who have not, who are still learning the basics of, you know, uh, not being a savage <laughs> at all. And they're told to get along and play. And uh, they're graded on, if there's any sort of grade at all at this point, on their ability to socially adjust and get on with the group. 
And that's really what it's all about. That's what it was all about for me in kindergarten. Do you think you were one of the, the misfits as Rand calls? Oh, I know I was one of the misfits. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really uh, get on with most of them. I had like one friend in the kindergarten. <laughs> the guy I would always, you know, the other kid I'd always play with because he liked to do the things that I liked to do. He liked to, you know, play with Lincoln logs or blocks or Legos or something. And I liked to construct things. And if I was left alone to my own little world or my own little world with this one guy who was interested in it, I was happy. But I was not left alone to do that. I was told that I had to participate in the other activities. I was told I had to stretch out beyond that one friend to get along with everybody else. Uh, and that I simply, you know, I'd, I'd oblige, I adjusted, I would obligingly go along, smile and nod and basically be silent when I was forced to participate in the other group activities. But the message is still delivered to me, even though I was think I was trying to retain a sense of integrity without knowing what I was doing. It's still going to have damage. I'm still having to adjust. I'm still trying to think, well, wait a minute. What is is the group more important than my own thinking on this? And, you know, as a four or five year old child, you don't have the, the context to be able to say, no, my judgment first. So it's still undercutting the confidence of even the misfit. But the misfits are the ones, as Ayn Rand points out, who have the best chance of surviving this sort of uh, early, these early stages of education. I'm, I'm sad to hear about that, but I'm glad you could overcome it. <laughs> um, could you, uh, let's go to the second step um, that Ron um, talks about, and that is the elementary school. So oh. <laughs> they start from this uh, mold that nursery school made, but what is their final state? Well, you know, it, the things that start happening in grammar school is that they realize, you know, uh, they have to start teaching some content <laughs> against any, against all of the uh, axioms of progressive education, uh, which de-emphasize content and memorization and rote learning is what they call it, uh, right? Or take the real classic way when you're teaching them to read. Of course, that's the first thing that happens after kindergarten in American education, you start, start learning to read. Uh, the method by which, uh, and it was a fad, I have to say, and fortunately, uh, it's going out. It only existed for a certain period. This look-say method of reading, uh, which is totally anti-conceptual, which is totally perceptual, rather than you know you when you're learning words for the first time this is your first opportunity to really start the conceptual education this is where con true conceptual education is starting to kick in and instead of tr tr learning how to uh read by means of the sounds of letters and the sounds of letter combinations and syllables that's a conceptual way i see s makes the sound s so every time i see that it stop uh slow sister ah so i've learned to pronounce the word in a conceptual way and i'm beginning to conceptually understand the role of the alphabet the role of syllables in talking so that now i can i know english is filled with exceptions so it's a difficult language to learn yes. but <laughs> because it doesn't always follow the rules you know pronunciation at least every every language has some variation english is particularly notorious here but instead of learning a conceptual approach to reading they're learning this what's called the whole word 
uh, methods. You get the whole word and you have to memorize the whole word and associate that with the uh, a referent of the concept. So, you know, elephant has to be to connect the whole word elephant has to be connected with elephant, which is really a perceptual way of training the conceptual mind. And so Ayn Rand particularly, uh, she makes a note here of how early education is anti-conceptual in that after kindergarten, when you first start, to start learning how to read, they're not training your conceptual faculty at all. They're training you to treat concepts like percepts which for obvious reasons is the destruction of the conceptual faculty. Isn't, I mean, I have no knowledge about uh, Asian language. Wouldn't you think that Asian writing, um, um, I don't know the name in English, uh, follows a similar pattern, like they're like small drawings. Well, there's a, well, without getting into that, I understand that it's a mixture, you know, as Egyptian hieroglyphs were a, a mixture of pictograms and, and phonetics and sounds. There is actually a conceptual way, even I, I do not know Chinese, any of the five dialects of Chinese, <laughs> I am completely ignorant of. But from what I'm told, uh, it's a mixture and there is a conceptual way to teach even East Asian languages. That's interesting. I, I really don't know about that. Uh, exactly. I don't know much about it myself. <laughs> but I, as I understand it, just like with Egyptian hieroglyphs, they went beyond a pictographic system. And so it's partially also a, a syllable and phonetic system, which would be the conceptual way to learn language. You could at least get started, even in teaching the language, with some conceptual training as they're developing learning how to read, which makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? See, there's a content there. And without that specific content, you really can't learn, right, the method. And so progressive educate, well, we want to teach method, 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 but we don't want rote learning or, or be wedded to any subject matter or some authoritarian teacher laying down the truth. Um, no, no, no. It's far better in this case, for example, when you are even laying down some truth about language to teach it conceptually. So let's move to high school so we receive this kid that has been gone through elementary and nursery school and has a very bad method and a very bad way of taking concrete things but how does it um end how does he come well, out of course now by the time of high school by the time they're starting to get into their teens we have some real subject matters to roll up our sleeves and teach them right we can start teaching them you know some serious math and science history literature um and you know with science and math there's there was always recognized certain limits because of course there is a subject matter but in the humanities in the humanity when they start getting their lessons in history and civics and literature uh, in high school, uh, you know, how the government runs, the history of your country and your culture, uh, the literature uh, in, of your language that they, they want to expose you to, uh, it becomes a discussion method. And one of the important um, methods of so-called progressive education was to de-emphasize the authority of the teacher and to let the students express their own opinions in sort of a bull session, as Ayn Rand describes it. Uh, and what, but what message does that give? If, if our preschoolers are taught that the group is everything, 
Then by the time in high school, when they're told that a discussion, a conversation on history is just as uh, uh, meaningful as learning the facts of history. You see, I had a really good teacher in high school. She did not entertain questions except to test the child's knowledge. And she had a subject matter, <laughs> European history, that she was going to teach us. And she every second was designed to deliver the content to us in a specific method. But she was conceptual about it. So she broke up the units into, say, Renaissance, Enlightenment, Dark Ages, right? And so we had a conceptual hold under which all the facts could be organized. That is not the progressive way of going about it. She, she was an authority teacher. She was laying down a subject matter. She wasn't opening it up for discussion with kids. Your opinion on Napoleon losing the Battle of Waterloo ain't as important as these scholars who know a lot more about it, kids. And why don't we start by learning what they know and how they know it if we're going to develop your method of thinking. Um, <clears throat> so these bull sessions uh, sort of leave the uh, teenager now with the sort of attitude that my opinion is as good as any, that there is no truth in these fields. Truth is either subjective or unknowable in these fields. And um, expressing my emotions on it is just as valid, which is sort of, uh, uh, you know, again, Every stage as they advance through their educational development, they're being given a message that undercuts independent thought, that undercuts conceptual thought. It's remarkable because the idea behind progressive education is to teach method over content, right? <laughs> and in that, they're really defeating themselves because without content, there is no way to teach method. And, and they end up teaching not how to con use your conceptual faculty at all, but simply how to emote and that your opinion matters as much as everyone's, the group is everything, and, and so forth, totally undercutting actually the development of a conceptual consciousness. And, and no self-esteem, right? Because they, they aren't able to deal with anything in the world with them, and, and that... Uh, Think about every circle. single step is undercutting self-esteem. It's not you. It's the group that matters, right? Think about that. It's not, right? We're not trying to get you to develop your own independent judgment in grammar school. No, 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 no. And by the time you get to studying the humanities, well, your opinion's just as good as the teacher's or any scholar of the past's. So what you, what you end up doing is undermining their self-esteem at every step. The group is everything, so that I'm terrified of being myself, actually, and even before myself has been formed, <laughs> my, conceptual, my, my conceptual faculty doesn't matter. So, of course, the one thing that might give me self-confidence goes untrained, so I feel helpless now, further feel helpless. And now with these bull sessions in high school, it, my opinion is as good as the teacher's. Well, of course, it's going to deduce, as Ayn Rand says, boredom and frustration. You know, you can't fool a consciousness. You mean you don't know what you're talking about? How am I supposed to develop a, a knowledge of what that is? At each stage, it undermines self-esteem and self-confidence. Absolutely. And your ability, therefore, of independent judgment, your confidence in it, your willingness to do it, your motive to do it. See, Dewey thought that instincts would provide motives. So all you had to do is let these little savages free to express their own instincts and they'll be the ones motivated to do it. Uh, you know, we were talking before, uh, just before the, our, our talk, you asked me about my own experience. 
when I was in fourth grade, about nine years old, eight, nine years old, my parents sent me to a very progressive school uh, in which the child could basically determine their own subject matter. Eight and nine-year-olds, think about it, determining what subjects to study in, you know, not math at the level they need to be studying, not reading at the level they need to be studying. No, no. You get to go expose yourself to sewing, knitting, uh, you know, basket weaving, whatever. I myself, you know, wanted exposure to different languages. So I, you know, I was a little, you know, I was exposed to German and Spanish and, you know, given a little exposure to some language, getting a little vocabulary. I think I was the best, but I still hated it. I wanted direction. And so my parents took me out of that and put me back into a more regular school. But that's a classic example of progressive education and uh, <laughs> what it does to kids. There are several other things that I would like to touch about this essay, but um, I think one of the most interesting questions is that she talks about par most parents being guilty about sending their, their children to these schools, but she also talks about some innocent parents. Could you discuss about this phenomenon? She actually says that of all the groups here, the teachers are even less morally responsible in a sense that all sure the teachers are, per, are really the sources of the problem in one sense. But it's not as though progressive educators, as she points out, hide their methods. They tell you the methods. My parents, for example, before they sent me to that uh, you know, uh, school for a year where you self-directed kids can self-directed, they knew that. They were told exactly what the school was all about. It didn't give them pause. I mean, and I had good parents, mind you. That didn't give them pause. So more than that, parents are the ones with the primary responsibility for the development, uh, psychological and educational development of their children. They have a positive responsibility to find these things out. These things are not secrets. They could easily find out how and what their children are being taught. There are parents, though, who really don't know uh, pedagogy. They really are ignorant of the subject and trust the authorities to some extent. And assume that, uh, you know, philosophers and educators have set up the correct <laughs> approach to educate early education and they don't know better. But, you know, at the end of the day, you've got, you do have more and less innocent parents on this topic. But at the end of the day, it's the parents' responsibility to find out, to know. They're the ones who are responsible for a child's uh, development, their own child's development, much more than, you know, certainly not the government responsible for that. Uh, but, you know, obviously the intellectual villains here are the teachers and, and the philosophers behind those teachers. I will um, ask you um, in a couple of questions why, um, but I would like to first discuss the final step that she uh, discusses, which is college or here in, in the UK, uni. So they come out of high school with no method, no content, uh, with a full weird view of, of um, how to think. And, but what are their, their expectations and what does college actually give them? I can tell you my expectations. I graduated from high school when I was 16 years old and started at university at that age. And I wanted out early. And I'd done the work so I could get out early because I wanted to learn. 
And when I got to university, I really did. I thought that the, no, 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 this is where I'm going to really start to learn is at university. I, you know, they, they always felt like they were telling me nonsense and stuff I disagreed with or stuff that I already knew. And so I felt very frustrated by uh, my primary education, apart from some good teachers like the history teacher I told you about. Um, so I figured this is where I'm going to really start learning. This is where the stuff begins. And bef before my freshman year was out, I was devastated, devastated at the what I wasn't being taught and the nonsense I was being taught, which seemed to just put a capstone. And that's exactly how Ayn Rand describes it. Now the theoretical and philosophical underpinnings of all that they had been trained and set up for from preschool through uh, primary school up through up through high school. Uh, now we can cash in on that by giving them exactly the philosophical basis for it, the substitute of the objective for the collective in Kant, or they're taught linguistic if they study philosophy, heaven help them. Because <laughs> now they're really going to learn the underpinnings. But you know, in all of the humanities, there's going to be a background of methodology that's just simply going to confirm in many instances, particularly in psychology and history and literature. <laughs> anyway, there's going to be a background methodology that's simply confirming everything that they were taught before. The group is everything. Your mind should be subordinated to the group. Emotions are what counts, not thinking. Uh, concepts can be treated perceptually, like from the look-say method. Uh, there is no really uh, firm content in the humanities. It can be a product of a bull session like we learned in high school. But now we're given in college the theoretical, elaborate explanation. <laughs> we have fancy philosophers and famous professors who can now uh, recite chapter and verse who believe every single one of those things and give you a theoretical justification for it. So if if uh, if those uh, uh, mental methods haven't been or non anti methods haven't already been driven into the poor kid's head before university, university puts the final theoretical capper on it, telling you, yep, that's what philosophy concludes. Uh, whether it's our logical positivist friends, or particularly our linguistic analyst friends, or our existentialist friends, whatever sort of philosophy. Uh, you're you're exposed to as the methodology for your humanities or for your philosophy for your um, philosophy itself uh, well, will give theoretical justification for every bad method that previous education has been encouraging the child to adopt. And maybe I'm curious what happened to the misfits and i had and i think that there are two kind of misfits here the ones who give up and the ones who won't give in could you discuss about both of them to endure the well let's consider the process that we've just laid out it is as ayn rand points out a heroic effort a heroic achievement if you can come out of such an education uh with a intact cognitive apparatus with a functioning conceptual apparatus is actually an achievement an achievement of independence an achievement of constantly questioning both your peers and your teachers and the content that you're being taught uh and so there are two kinds of misfits you're right the kind of misfit that will hold on and it doesn't always come out pretty they may have some very big mistakes in the course of that, but it's their rebellion against the methods of, uh, of that they're taught that is actually their salvation. 
unfortunately, that is a heroic minority. After being psychoepistemologically battered like that in the education process, most misfits become thoroughly alienated loners, give up on the whole realm of ideas. And so you have, for example, uh, people who will rush into, as Ayn Rand points out, into the physical sciences because they at least have answers. But of course, that creates in their own mind a dichotomy between the human, right, and the physical, between reason and people between values and people. And there, a stark false dichotomy is presented in each of those cases. So even if some of your better misfits go into say, the physical sciences, what they're doing is they're cutting themselves off from the whole world of values and human experience. Right? One of the most important areas of w w the need for a, a conceptual apparatus, a functioning conceptual apparatus. But even there, alas, there are many who don't even do that get to that point and simply shut off the mind and uh, consider all intellectual things uh, to be you know, dis um, untrustworthy, no better than religion, no better than my feelings, no better than somebody else's opinion. And isn't that what they've been taught through the whole process here? Definitely. And just to pitch in um, uh, some advertisement for previous discussions that we have, we have discussed this kind of mentality in altruism as appeasement yes. a months ago. Altruism appeasement, maybe you're wrong. A lot of the essays we've discussed, you know, uh, whether they're Peikoff or Rand essays, really chime in on this very issue. This is one of Ayn Rand's most important essays, because in it she gives us her understanding of human consciousness as it develops the developing human consciousness and what its needs are circling back to the identity of consciousness idea. Education cannot be done instinctively, emotionally, socially, randomly. No, no, no. We need a specific content and we need a specific methodology that the teacher needs to teach from on high because these are ignorant children uh, who need to develop this capacity, this skill of conceptual thought. Or they're hobbled for life. Um, like so, the Gomberchikos did physically to exactly. children. You know. uh, well, I mean, that, that's my last question. But um, so, but, but I, I was liking to, I was hoping to ask you why, uh, what is the motivation for these teachers? Why do they do this? Why do they become Gomberchikos? Control, power. In their own minds, they know they're not going to be, the educators themselves know that they're not going to be the uh, gang leaders, the politicians, the Adolf Hitlers, or the Joseph Stalins. But in a sense, it's power at their own level. Power to control these minds and turn them into the compliant minds that will accept their agenda. Now, not all educators are that self-conscious about it, as Ayn Rand points out. Uh, many of them are just going along and wouldn't question the pedagogy that they're being, you know, this, the methods of pedagogy they're being taught. But the more aware, the more aware ones are perfectly aware of what they're doing and want to create, in effect, a psychological impact on the child. And it's their impacting that child that's really the reward they get, if you can I'll put reward in scare court quotes, their psychological motive in doing it. Um, it's malevolent. It's the malice of Ellsworth Tui.
I hate to be that cruel about it, but it really is. And Ayn Rand makes the very comparison. Now, I have a question of how generalized this is in the sense of, I think that uh, the viewer would say, well, I can see more or less this in, to some extent in my life or to the um, the ways that I've seen some of the education of my ch children or, or the world that I'm seeing. But I, I don't exactly see a world filled with uh, uh, the children of the Comprachicos. So what, how, um, how much have these ideas been entrenched? And also how dominant are these kind of schools? Oh, no, 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 no. I have to disagree. I think we are increasing. I, Ayn Rand at her own time was observing that the college, uh, uh, the the violence on college campuses, the demands on college campuses to control universities. We are in control of universities, not the faculties. We're in control of universities, not the administration. We're, we, and we demand now and we will get violent. And notice she compares it to the, like the emotional outbursts of the preschooler. <laughs> They've learned that emotions and groupthink are what will get them the way. And so by the time they're in university, they still the same method. And so the, you had a whole horde of college uh, uh, university radicals in the late 1960s and early 70s in this country who were acting exactly like Ayn Rand. Look, she can look at the drug culture, she points out. Could there be any more eloquent symptom of minds trying to escape themselves and uh, a drug, something called a drug culture, right? In which, uh, what we're doing is we're anesthetizing our, our, our uh, you know, hobbled minds. Something so, I mean, look at the what it did, too. I mean, a whole generation, I mean, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, famous musical artists who had uh, drug overdoses, so much drugs, they were committing suicide or numbing their brain. Now, on a mass phenomenon scale like that, a drug culture like that can only be explained, Ayn Rand says, because of the impact the the, the uh, college radicals and their demonstrations could only be understood as the impact of these educational methods. And I have to say that even though some of these methods have been, as I say, uh, pulled back, people realize, that, for example, in many quarters that look, say, doesn't work in teaching uh, reading, <laughs> and that there does need to be some sort of curriculum that the authoritative teacher teaches. Uh, so although some of this has been pulled back on, I still see, even to a more dramatic degree in some ways, the effect of progressive uh, education, broadly speaking, progressive ideas in education, having a worse and worse effect. Do you think that things have gotten better in the last 40 or 50 years when it comes to the conceptual apparatus of our young people? I do not. Definitely not. Um, so before I pitch you my last question, I want to thank uh, Jeff, uh, who uh, thanks us. He says, uh, great show, gents. Um, and also uh, Carolina, um, thank you. And also Jaime, gracias. So um, <laughs> with that said, James, how do we protect ourselves from the Pompachicos, um, my yeah, at least for students, what would you say? My protection. Me? Now, I know I was lucky. I know I was lucky. I had 
good parents who pulled me out of that school, for example, put me into better ones, got me that better high school teacher of history, for example. Uh, so I had good parents. But nonetheless, I was the victim of many aspects of progressive education. And if I had not found Ayn Rand in my high school years, I, do, I cannot tell you what I would be like today. You know that Beach Boy song, God Only Knows? God only knows what I would be without Ayn Rand. And I would pull that out. Uh, I've seen people pull pull it out even later than I did, though, discovering Ayn Rand in their 20s, 30s. I've even known people discovering Ayn Rand in their 40s. And they were able to pull it out. So the answer, philosophy. We've got to change the way philosophy is taught. It, reality has to be an absolute. The group can't rule. We have to uh, say that there's a specific method of knowing and that that method of knowing is efficacious. Otherwise, all of these pedagogical tools, will, there's no good response to it. So epistemology, philosophy generally is the answer here. No question about it. And without a better philosophy, bad ideas, pedagogical ideas are doomed to be a part of our educational system, both in Europe and in North America, I fear. Ayn Rand is the answer, ultimately. A better epistemology is the answer, ultimately. And hopefully, in the course of your education, you can be exposed to some better philosophy, Aristotle, Ayn Rand. But outside of that, I see no hope. Certainly. Um, so, James, um, it's been a pleasure, as always. Is there anything else that you would like to say? No. Wow. What outstanding questions, Alejandro, as usual. Very insightful. Um, I understand that we're going to continue dis our discussion if we can next week. Uh, and so Comper Chico's part two, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is, will be our subject a week from today. Yes, a special event um, feature of this discussion of essays. Well, um, I want to thank you, James, and thank you to the audience. Please, if you like this kind of discussions, contribute to Ayn Rand Center UK. Uh, membership start on £10 a month and you get a lot of perks, things that uh, are really valuable. Uh, you can get Don Watkins or, or you can discuss uh, on Sundays uh, Learn Pickoff's courses with James to go deeper into this philosophy. If you are, for instance, a product of the Comperchicas of the Mind, um, you can uh, vaccinate yourself with James. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. What a, thank you very much. Do hit much. like, subscribe, and consider becoming a member of UK, uh, Ayn Rand Center UK. Really, we are putting out amazing content. Um, and if you like this, please join us. And hit the bell. Thank you. Thank you.